in the true unit, what they was doing was they was teaching all the inmates in that unit these appropriate habits. They was teaching them, you know, life skills. They was they was picking up traits. They was learning how to be barbers. They was learning how to be culinary school, you know, where they can be chefs and make food. Like they was picking up traits where they can go out and immediately have an impact in society. They can survive. They have certificates, things like that. And I think they had a 1% return rate. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is former NBA All-Star Karan Butler, currently an assistant coach at the Miami Heat and a trustee at the Vera Institute for Justice. I was a big fan of Karan's when he played with my home team, the Washington Wizards, and I've read his fine memoir, Tough Juice, My Journey from the Streets to the NBA. Karan has quite a life story so far. He grew up in a tough neighborhood in Racine, Wisconsin, got himself in a lot of trouble in the ages 11 to 15, then turned his life around, becoming a standout basketball player, starring for two years at the University of Connecticut, becoming a top draft choice in the NBA and a top player there for 15 years. Karan is a good citizen, working hard to improve communities like Racine and working to tackle problems in our criminal justice system. Karan is now training to be a head coach and has political aspirations down the road. I enjoyed the conversation with him and think you will as well. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Karan Butler with the NBA and the Vera Institute for Justice. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com that is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y dot com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. How's your day so far? Good. We got a travel day today. We headed to uh, OKC in an hour and a half. This is with the heat? Yeah. We had a game last night. We ended up staying in Indiana, so... Head to OKC, head to Houston, and then Mexico City to play the Spurs. That'll keep you busy. You're still in that lifestyle, huh? Yeah, man. It's constant <laughs> grind still. <laughs> you know, we have something in common. I live across the street in Northwest D.C. from Steve Tapscott, who is Tapscott's brother. And so I know the Tapscotts pretty well. And so I was talking to Steve. He thinks that you're one of the good guys on the Wizards back in the day, not what they call the knuckleheads. <laughs> yeah, Ed Tapscott, uh, he helped me a lot in my professional career. When he was the interim coach, when he had to take over, he did a remarkable job on the fly. I got the utmost respect for him. Yeah, that's a good family. Would you do me a favor? Would you introduce yourself and give me a quick biography? Yeah, try my best. Um, 
My name is Karan Butler. I am the assistant coach for the Miami Heat. I'm also a former NBA player. 15 seasons, played with teams like the Lakers, the Dallas Mavericks, obviously the Washington Wizards. Won an NBA championship in 2011 with the Dallas Mavericks. I'm a two-time All-Star. I'm also a father of five, four girls, one son, and I serve on the Criminal Justice Reform Board, known as the Vera Institute of Justice. I also do a lot of philanthropic work in the racing community and all the communities that I've served or worked in. And lastly, I just, you know, really in tune with writing right now. I just published a children's book with HarperCollins, uh, co-authored with Justin Reynolds. And I look forward to, you know, creating more material with him down in the near future. It's quite a biography. And what's cool for me is that, you know, I mostly talk to people who are political and you're political because you're trying to improve society, but your background as an athlete is so different and your background coming from Racine and having less privilege than some of the folks I talk to is also kind of part of it. Although I have talked to a number of people who've been incarcerated as young men and gone on to do really amazing things, starting jobs programs or writing books about opioid abuse and trying to fix things or things like that. So I respect a lot how you've changed your life since you were 11 to 15. Appreciate it. I wonder though, because people don't know you in my world, I listened to your memoir on a drive a couple days ago from DC to Connecticut. It is extremely engaging and moving and quite a story. Could you just tell people who don't know you, haven't read that, a little bit about sort of the, you had such good, positive role models in mother and grandmother and less so maybe in the streets around you. Tell me a little bit about your background so that people understand where you come from. I'm born and raised in Racine, Wisconsin. My family migrated from Columbus, Mississippi in the late 60s, early 70s. My grandmother worked on the cotton fields in Columbus, Mississippi. Um, she came up as a contractor for J.I. Case and worked on the assembly lines. For the most part, everything that I've seen was, and my surroundings in my community was just, you know, terrible. You know, all the things that a kid should be sheltered from or never exposed to until they knew the nuances of the world and how it operated. But I was exposed to everything at a young age. I remember as early as, you know, five, six, seven years old. You know, when you talk about shootings, when you talk about drugs, prostitution, everything. It was like literally at my doorstep right in front of me from the second that I jumped off the porch. But the women in my family, they worked. They worked extremely hard. The men in my family was, you know, subject to all the things that I saw around me. My uncles was in and out of prison. I had one uncle who was just gifted from a basketball standpoint, very talented. And I had another uncle who was a little older. He was actually the oldest child of my grandmother, my uncle Richard. He was in and out of prison a lot. He was selling drugs. He was with one of the biggest, you know, known drug dealers in our our region. And I saw bags of money. I saw, you know, how things was operated, how things was ran. And what I was exposed to, I wanted to be. I wanted to be just like. 
So at a young age, I just, you know, start getting super intrigued because I'm an inquisitive kid. I start trying to mimic Junebug and my Uncle Richard from what I saw them doing in my own little setting. I started being the leader of, you know, my little own operation. I, I was a paper boy. I started selling drugs and the game just kind of took me on a ride that, you know, I'm still scarred from and I still get the chills from the experiences that I had in the game, you know, from losing some of my closest friends, they was murdered to, you know, shooting at individuals myself from getting shot at from the experiences that I had with law enforcement, all those things uh, took me on a roller coaster ride that, like I said, still give me chills to this day. Yeah, I, I commend that book to anyone who would like to understand our country a little bit better who's not been exposed to that. When I was a kid growing up in the mean streets of Boulder, Colorado, I found a kind of entrepreneurial activity, which was scalping tickets at the Colorado Buffaloes football games. We could make quick money talking people out of their extra tickets and selling them for 10 bucks or 15 bucks. And my brother and I and other 10, 11 year olds were running around doing that. And so we could come out with $200 in an hour and a half, which was the only time that we had cash like that showing up. My neighborhood was was University Hill. It was very safe generally and and not as you know, as far as I know, didn't have a lot of the the challenges that you did. But I understood the competitiveness of kind of buying and selling and the excitement of finding that money and like competing with friends for this. I think it's very analogous, honestly, even though it wasn't illegal. It was it might have been slightly illegal, but you weren't gonna get into big trouble. And one thing that I, I've kind of got to know about you just by watching your basketball career and also reading your book is that you have that competitiveness streak and it served you sometimes incredibly well and sometimes not. What is the source of that? Why do you think you're someone who always liked to compete so much? Well, I, I think that when I look at the resources that my grandparents and people before me had they didn't have that many resources, but they was competitive in survival. They had a grit about them that couldn't be manufactured or made up because it was their reality. Survival is a different type of grit. And I saw it firsthand. I felt it. I also felt what the back of, you know, my stomach felt like um, as a kid, that hunger. And I never wanted to feel that that feeling ever again but I knew what it took to not feel that feeling. I knew what it took from a negative standpoint. I knew what it took from a positive standpoint because I went through a negative experience with selling drugs and doing all those things, but I also went through it through a positive experience where it is a pathway where you can make it in society if you outwork your competition. So I, I always wanted to just outperform, you know, the, the margins. And that's where that grit came from. And I can't, take it away as part of the fabric of who I am. That's why, you know, I go extremely hard. I 10X the process with everything that I do because I'm just wired like that. I want to be the best at what I do, not one of the best, the best. I take a, a lot of pride in that. And that comes from the representation of, I'm representing all my my family. You know, I'm a butler. I I, I represent that legacy and I try to carry that with me. 
I take that extremely personal. I think even at the highest levels of competition, people fall short on the mental game. Something in their mind stops them from going all out or, or as you put it, 10xing the process. Did you find that even in the NBA, that even at that level, people who uh, didn't practice hard enough, didn't play hard enough, or do you find that now when you're coaching? Yeah, you know, I see the consequences of bad habits all the time. For instance, like when I was growing up, I used to always see the consequences of habits, you know, like bad habits going south relatively quick where you go from bad to terrible to horrific, where it end up costs you your life and things like that. I mean, sports is a little different because, you know, obviously your habits go terrible, you lose games, uh, but you can apply it to the, the same things that you see in life. I just think that's extremely important that you concentrate on those little things and the trends of those little things and try to, you know, reshape some of the habits that one has. That was extremely important for me. I know we're going to get to it, but when I went through the whole process of being incarcerated and my life slowed down, that was important for me to come out a better version of myself. Now, it ain't shit that the system did for me. It was just me working on me. Like my life slowed down. The expectations of me being bad or good on the streets um, wasn't there no more. And I was just able to just focus on how I was going to reshape and rewire myself and my habits. The rehabilitation wasn't there. The programming wasn't there. And I know we're going to get to that eventually as well. But I was just like, I have to be a better version of me coming out of here. I have to you know, master the art of my temperament. I got to master the art of my goals and what I'm, you know, going to subject myself to, expose myself to when I get back out. You know, what are my triggers? You know, what take me to a place where I, I find it hard to come from? All those things. I had to really get in tune with myself and the things that just steer me off the path of success. I, I remember the point in your memoir where you are being held and you get into a fight that extends your stay there. That's clearly a moment where, I mean, it's one of these things where you wish you have a rewind button and you could undo what just happened. Is there a turning point for you? Like it, usually in life you can go back and say there's a turning point, but usually it's more of a gradual change. How did you move from a trajectory that was not in the right direction to one where you were starting to build character and, and make the right choices? It was a great, that's a, that's a great question. No one ever asked me that. And I would say it's a sequence of a lot of things. It's a sequence of me personally going through this new experience of trauma and being incarcerated for an extended period of time. That's one, because no one wants to live like that. No one wants to recycle that behavior with any you know sense. And then I think about What's happening around me, the people that I love most, who I hang with most, who could easily be me, you know, just a phone booth uh, square away from being me are being subtracted from society. They're losing their lives. They're no longer here. That made me process things a little different. Like I can die out here. You know, it's no coming back from death. Forever is like a long time, like forever is forever. So it's like I can be part of that math. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't like that notion. I didn't like that, but I saw that's what my projected future was possibly becoming if I chose to keep these habits. 
I mean, it's clear that you're unusually intelligent and unusually athletically talented and big. You know, you had a lot of those things going for you and you had the mother and the grandmother. It took all of that in a certain sense, plus your own determination to extract yourself. What needs to be done for people who aren't going to make the NBA or aren't going to rise up because they have just extraordinary gifts and luck? What needs to be done for people who just are normal every day, but subject to the same temptations and difficulties of society? What should we be doing different? Well, I, th- I think society really is hard on people that's trying to progress and they're quick to put you in a box where they limit your dreams or your expectations or what you feel or hope that you can one day be with this continuous hard work. And I think that, you know, like you said, everybody's not going to be an athlete. Everyone's not going to make millions of dollars off a genetic gift that they got. But, you know, everyone do possess a gift. and I think that it needs to be more things, more uplifting things in society that steer people down those paths to help them connect with their gift and their passions where they can pretty much do all the things that they dreamed of. You know what I mean? And I don't see that. I don't see the opportunities and the floodgates opportunities just open up exposing people to that. You know, what I see a lot of is people being placed in a specific category at an early age. I see people getting records and uh, being casted away and put in this box and then placed with limitations early. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're working and never being able to work for yourself. You're subjected to, you know, a wage that's probably something that you never thought that you would be subjected to. And now you're in this box and you're just in survival mode and you live in that space. And then your expectations and all your dreams or the things that you wanted to be that in your wildest dreams, they go away because you're just dealing with reality, you know, everyday moments and situations of a struggle. And that's what I see that's happening in society across the board. You've clearly moved from one world to a different world, a dramatically different world that you live in now and that I assume your offspring live in. Is it hard for you to communicate back to the to the original world now that you're rich, you're famous, you're educated? Or do you feel like you are able to keep those ties and speak the language that you grew up with? A lot of my family is still in the world where I grew up in and where I come from and some of the habits. And I spend at least five months of my life when I'm not working, I'm five months back in Racine, Wisconsin, in my community center, amongst the people, walking with the people, connecting with my people and just talking to them about real issues and real problems and trying to help in some capacity always. So the language is the language. I don't code switch. My is it's my life. It's who I am. Is what I'm come from. Is the fabric of who I am. And I just try to, you know, stay authentic and as genuine as possible. I always uh, show empathy. I do appreciate the moments that I do have where I have this clarity and this, you know, pure moments where I'm with my kids and. We're at our barn and we're riding on horses and things like that. But I never forget how far and the sacrifices that it took to get to having those moments like that. 
I go back and share my experiences with, you know, people from all walks of life, but specifically the people from my community and talk to them that, you know, don't ever give up on your dreams because this is my reality. This is how I live. And I try to come back and inspire y'all that, you know, y'all can do anything. You got a second chance and a third chance and maybe a lot of chances. Some people don't seem to get that. How do we treat people who have screwed up badly? There's this kind of point of view about people who've been in prison, people who have been felons, things like that, that they don't want to let them back into society on full footing. They don't want to let them vote. They don't want to let them into various jobs. How should we think about people who have screwed up but have the potential to renovate their lives and be good citizens? Well, I, I think that a lot of the negative things, some of the stuff you just mentioned, is always broadcasted before the positives. I'm willing to bet, like, there's so many positive stories outside of the one that I'm living out there that we need to amplify and talk about and how many people that those individuals are inspiring and helping and showing that it's a pathway and a, a way out of that trauma. I want to say this, too, because a lot of people feel like it's not their problem. Someone go to jail, they 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 break the law or they have, you know, a mistakable moment, uh, unforgivable moment that they wish, you know, they can just turn back the clocks and, you know, change. And it happens. That is part of life. And some people are afforded through great lawyers and things that their mistakes don't continue to haunt them. But for the people that do have to go through that pipeline and that process. And if they don't get rehabilitated, their traumas will spill on you. So this is a everybody problem. It's not just a my problem or someone that looked like me problem, black and brown people. This is all people problem that we make sure that we tap into the people that's struggling the most and the folks that's going into these correctional facilities. We got to exhaust all the things in the toolbox to make sure that they're getting the proper treatment. So when they come back in society, they are wired to be the best possible version of themselves, that they are wired to you know, be assets to the communities and things like that. Because if they come out worse than what they went in, it's going to spill on all of us. One of the things that's great about sports is when you have good coaches that have the right values you can learn in that environment about being a good person beyond just being a good player. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the coaches that you've had that impacted your journey towards being an enlightened guy that you are? Well, I, I would say uh, my, my first coach was my community center coach, Bart Trussell, Watt Booker, some of the legends. They mentor so many people in the community. And then Jamil Aguari at the George Bray Community Center, a Muslim brother that educated me on the importance of reading and knowing my culture and my history and where I come from and the importance of representation. And then I went to well, MCI prep school where Max Good, hard-nosed military guy, but he taught me a lot about this professionalism and how to carry myself and the expectations of being black in a predominantly white environment. He said the black population of Maine went up when our basketball team arrived to Maine. So he always used to tell me that joke, and I, I've laughed at it, but it was so true because 
it was it was real. It was like it was the only color folks I seen in Maine at the time back in the early nineties. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like you'll see no black people here. It but but I knew it was like, okay, the expectations of you know how people looked at you, how they perceive you and all those things. And then my experience with the legendary Hall of Fame coach, uh, Jim Calhoun, was different at UConn because I came and I was embraced as family and I had the university experience. So my education, he taught me the importance of education and, you know, how to diversify what I was trying to do from a basketball standpoint, looking at myself as a business and a brand, making sure that I network because that will eventually be my net worth. And I, I, I caught that early making sure that I, you know, develop allies, stay inquisitive, get the right information. And then I end up going, get drafted by the Miami Heat and the godfather of the game, Pat Riley. He just taught me a lot about life. He just taught me a lot about preparation and all those things. And I got traded and this wasn't my coach, but this was someone that coached me in life and my big brother, you know, God rest his soul, Kobe Bryant. He taught me a lot just about work ethic. He taught me a lot about business and how he operated his things. I'm forever grateful for that experience. So he was a coach as well to me. During this whole time, 15 years in the NBA is extremely rare. Were you paying attention to politics in the sense of elections and parties? And what was your attitude and the other players' attitude towards that world? I think a lot of people wasn't paying attention to politics at a, a local level, a lot of people were because there was some, a lot of things that was happening in racing, Wisconsin specifically, um, where you were seeing uh, being gentrified and stuff like that. And you were just like talking to the alderman, you was talking to the mayor, you was talking to all these folks. But we didn't understand like the three branches of government and how that stuff operated because we wasn't well versed in school and when we was growing up in that space. But one of the things that really jumped out to me was you know, when Obama had came on the ticket, I think a lot of people, one, they got more excited to vote. But two, I think they just start trying to educate themselves a little more on what they should be voting for and how they can move the needle and change. What was your reaction when Trump came on the scene? I didn't have an initial reaction when he came on the scene. I thought he was loud. I thought he had grasped a lot of attention from people that probably wasn't excited about the process of voting because it was always stale from an energetic standpoint, but he brought just a sense of entertainment to the whole like election campaign process. Did you feel like he was playing kind of the race card in his election or did you not worry about that? I didn't worry about it, but I saw the headlines and the stories. I did see like it pivot more to white America, the messaging. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you finish playing and you start to get involved, even while you're a player, but you start to get involved more in things like Vera. Nick Turner is the person who introduced me to you, who runs that. You're a trustee in that uh, organization. Tell me a little bit about how you start getting involved in social justice sort of efforts. As we uh, talked about earlier in this interview, my process and what I went through as a, a individual personally is all the things that Vera focuses on. When you talk about immigration reform, when you talk about 
rehabilitation for people and not having mass incarceration because that is a huge problem in society and just trying to explore other things in the toolkit. They were doing the work and I was going through the actual experience. So fast forward to 2016, 2017, I had dinner with or a brunch with Nick, the National Basketball Association, the NBA, some of the folks that I knew, some of my colleagues, they was like, you got to meet this guy. He's doing great work and you'll be great on the board. It's kind of some of the stuff you're doing already. And I talked to him, uh, our energy and everything was aligned. And I just start going, visiting uh, these correctional facilities, uh, speaking truth to power, trying to inspire these individuals to get out and that is still hope on the other side for them and the importance of habits, things like that. And we've been doing that for over five years together, trying to, you know, change the world in our own little way. But then also like with stop solitary confinement, getting bills passed, like in the state of Connecticut, where people are locked up behind bars more than nine hours in a day and that they're focusing on rehabilitation and stuff like that. So getting bills passed and going through that process, I'm just learning more and more about like your influence and how you can impact change. When you go speak to prisoners, how do they react to you in general? Tell me a little bit about some interactions that you've had and what's that feel like? Well, I think it's special because one, I think the conversation hits different when you know someone is from like the fabric of it, like the real it. And it's like, OK, I, you have their undivided attention. That's the low hanging fruit out the gate. Like you have their undivided attention because you come from the experiences that they come from. And then they see you as like hope right out the gate because they know that it's authentic and real and you don't have to be there. But then you got to make sure that the messaging is on point and that you're speaking truth to power because you can lose them. And the, the reality is, I know that the treatment isn't right. I know that some of the things that that we go through is part of the recycle experiences that's been created by people of the higher ups. And that's just the way it happens. You know, the limited opportunities that you know, black and brown people have in society sometimes is structurally placed that way. And we're a product of a lot of bad decisions sometimes, some being ours, but obviously some being made by people that's highly, highly net worth individuals. So I come from them from that standpoint, but I also come from just making sure that they're in the mindset of changing, you know, changing their habits. What do they want? Staying goal oriented. What's their why? What inspired them every day to wake up and be better? Because it's tough because sometimes the time do you, but you want to do the time and you want to make sure that you're getting better every day. So when you come back to society, you won't miss a beat. Do you think that most people who are incarcerated come out uh, worse? A hundred percent. If you could reform the system, what kinds of things, I mean, you've mentioned a few of the things, you know, like less solitary, but if you could really reform it from scratch, how would you treat people that sold something illegal or killed somebody or anything in between? What do you think it should look like? What would be the big vision? Man, I think we got to address all traumas, all situations for the face value. 
every individual is different. I can't identify you as a criminal and just put you in a box with all criminals or all people that's incarcerated. I got to identify your issues and make sure that I'm rehabilitating your traumas. And it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of time, but that's the problem. You know, people don't want to spend money on inmates that's been cast away from society. Um, They want them to go there, sit there, pretty much rot there. Or if you don't rot, you get out and you go back and then you eventually rot instead of just making sure that you're getting the, the right attention that you need and making sure that your traumas are addressed. And that's how I feel like we can really change and have a real impact on society by having empathy. Now, it will cost money because it, it's resources, but we're more than capable of doing that and making these individuals better. I mean, other countries don't incarcerate the incredible percentage of their populations that we do. I think we have 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the incarcerated folks. It doesn't have to be this way. And what do the people look like that's mostly incarcerated? You know, that's another big thing for me. When you look at some of the practices that you've seen in Germany, and I think the true unit is actually here in Connecticut. I actually went to visit that that place, the true unit. And what I saw there was, it's mind blowing. All the things that I'm talking to you about that I learned when my life slowed down and I just said I had to focus on myself and the habits and all those things. They don't teach you in school. They don't teach you financial literacy. They don't teach you the importance of checkbooks and the balance of checkbooks. And now it's different because you got Zelle, Apple Pay, all these different other apps to take you through that process. But you know, the basic needs that you need to have to survive in life, some of those things they don't teach you in school or business plans or, you know, creating your LLC and all those different things. They don't teach you that stuff in school. It's basic math, it's other things. And then you might get calculus and geometry and other things like that throughout the process. But in the true unit, what they was doing was they was teaching all the inmates in that unit, these appropriate habits. They was teaching them, you know, life skills. They was, they was picking up traits. They was learning how to be barbers. They was learning how to be culinary school, you know, where they can be chefs and make food. Like they was picking up traits where they can go out and immediately have an impact in society. They can survive. They have certificates, things like that. And I think they had a 1% return rate, you know, like anyone that came out of this program. And I think it was roughly 30 to 40 people. They never came back. And I thought that was just remarkable. And and that's the rehabilitation I'm talking about. That's the programming that I'm talking about. We have to have more of that on a broader scale. And I think it would just be better for everyone. The facility that you got placed in, I assume it was in Wisconsin. Correct. Was kind of a special one. And one, I just noticed one line in your book where you said, this was taken away by Governor Walker for budgetary reasons. And I know that governors like Walker and politicians actually in both parties have made a political football of criminal justice, of safety, of crime. And it just caught my eye that like here was a place that at least had a little bit better conditions in certain ways than other prisons. And yet that got axed. 
it hurt me in that moment reading it. How do you think about the intersection of politics and criminal justice? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of times budget cuts and things happen, which is just terrible, but it's for their own personal campaigns or the people that sponsoring these campaigns beliefs. For instance, with Ethan Allen, I just don't think that Ethan Allen should have been cut because it was a bridge, obviously, for prison. It was a boys school, but at the same time, it wasn't prison. So it still was a place where, you know, you had a merit program, you had things like that, where you go there and you was rehabilitated. It was low crime, even though I, I had to go to maximum security one time and do two weeks in there for my own uh, behavior that I had with an incident of, you know, a rival neighborhood, stuff like that. But for the most part, all the programming from the Johnson Cottage to Alcohol Anonymous, all the stuff that was going on in there, it was this great programming and people was really getting better from. But then you take that away and then now, you know, you have teenagers, they don't have a location to go to. So they're now they're just going straight. They can waved into adult prison right out the gate. And you don't want that for any kid. You know, that experience, you know, kids getting taken advantage of, individuals you know, uh, sexually getting harassed, things like that at a young age is just, it's just brutal. It's just brutal. I don't know where that, <laughs> I don't know where that education or where that information came from, where, you know, they felt like they should close that place. It, it just didn't make no sense. Yeah. You're coaching now. What do you see in young folks that are on the team and and that you deal with outside. What is different now about kids than that was when you were young? I, I think emotions are different, obviously, because we grew up in different times. I never had to experience a pandemic. I never had to experience learning from home. I never had to experience sheltering myself away, practicing social distancing and things like that outside the people that I wanted to stay away from. But People are a little more fragile. Uh, communication is a little more less, you know, from a eye to eye standpoint. It's more, you know, through devices. But I think that people are willing to still listen. People are willing to still learn if you come from an authentic place and share your experiences. And I, I enjoy doing that. I really do. We have some of the best talented athletes in the world and some of the most humble athletes in the world that we get the privilege to coach. That's all about the right things. All they want to do is win. All they want to do is, you know, impact the team. And and we recruit them just like that. We sign them on because, you know, they fit the fabric of everything our organization is about. There are NBA players who have gone on to be congressmen, to be senators, to participate in society in various ways that are admirable. Who among your peers is doing things that you think ought to be noted? Well, I think Jalen Brown, he's a player for the Boston Celtics. He's doing remarkable work. Speaking truth to power, Malcolm Brogdon, I think his granddad or uh, his uncle marched with uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he has a had a great presence during the midst of COVID, the whole movement behind George Floyd and everything that happened with that situation. Um, he's really just moved the needle in social justice and change. 
Carl Anthony Towns, I, I know he's doing some great work as well. C.J. McCollum, another one of the players uh, from the Portland Trail Blazers. I just hear things and I read some articles, a lot of WNBA players. Uh, Satu Sabala, she's doing great work. There's just a lot of people out there just trying to move the needle and, and change. And they're not just doing it just because it's a cool thing, because a lot of the energy that um, happened in 2020 has fallen off. And now you see like the people that's just extremely passionate about what they do still in that space. So it's, you know, it's remarkable to see some of those young people, you know, in front of it. What do you see for yourself in the future? Do you want to be a head coach? I know you're a businessman. Do you want to keep growing your businesses? I want to continue to do all those things. I want to continue to grow my business. We're doing a lot of stuff back in Racine, Wisconsin, through Opportunity Zoning, the Starbucks, the bakery, the community center, the real estate properties. I want to continue to grow that. Um, and then from a coaching standpoint, of course, you know, that's every – Assistant coach dream is to someday, one day be a head coach. And that's why I'm in basketball school right now, learning from some of the best coaches ever to coach the game and the godfather of the game, Pat Riley, and obviously Eric Spolstra. And then, you know, from a politics standpoint, you know, I wouldn't mind running in some capacity uh, someday. I don't know when that time may be, but I don't know what I will be running for either. But I know I'm well versed in that space and I know that I'm going to do right by people all people when I do run and I'm going to speak truth to power. So I have my entire life, you know, put my own money behind my beliefs, you know, whether it's giveaways in the communities, whether it's sponsorships and things like people see my sweat equity and in, in all the things that I do. So that's something I'm definitely open to. And especially after seeing the runoff in Atlanta, <laughs> I was like, wow, it, it things and got crazy out here, man. So I look forward to, you know, getting in that space at some point. That's actually my next question. I thought you would make a hell of a candidate. And I suspect with where your values have come, a person I wouldn't mind making big decisions in a state or more for other people. You're putting yourself on a path, training yourself for being a head coach. What do you think you need to learn yet? to, or are you already there, to be a coach on the NBA level? And what if you were going to go into politics and run for mayor, governor, senator, something like that? What do you think you need to learn yet, if anything, in the world of politics? I, I think I need to keep my my ears open twice as much, my eyes open three times as much, and, you know, probably my, my mouth shut a lot and just continue to listen and, and watch. And I, I don't know if I'm ready to be a head coach. You don't know until you know. I don't know if I'm ready to, you know, be in politics and lead to whatever capacity. You don't know until you know. But I do know that everything that I have been given or, or earned the, the opportunity to do, I've done well at it. And I don't take it for granted. I will work extremely hard at it. You know, when that time comes, I want people to know that I'm going to work my ass off. I don't take no time off. And I will empty myself in everything that I do. Are you familiar with Wes Moore, who just got elected governor of Maryland? I saw the name. I'm not familiar with them personally, though. He's an interesting guy. He 
uh, wrote a book. Uh, he grew up in Baltimore. He wrote a book called The Other Wes Moore, which is about two guys, both with the same name, one who ends up in prison and he had a much better path and ends up with a very successful career, which has just taken him to governorship. Before this, he ran Robin Hood Foundation, which is a huge anti-poverty thing in New York, African-American guy. There's something about people like Wes, and I think people like you, who have had such deep experiences with life that are the kinds of people that we need leading. I hope you do keep considering it. You can see that it can happen. Like we can put people like that in roles nowadays running states or whatever. Absolutely. Bill Bradley, for example, right, came out of the NBA, gets to be a senator. What should I have asked you that I haven't? What would you like to tell people about yourself or about society that we haven't talked about? I think you covered a lot of great points. But what I would say is just, you know, right now we're in the trying times. We are in trying times because you see the the emotions visually across the board from people from all walks of life. And this, this is a we thing. It's not, you know, just, you know, I always speak for my people or people that look like me that come from situations that I come from, but I want to speak for all people right now and just say that, you know, we cannot lack empathy right now. Our world is hurting. People are struggling. People are trying to make it. And right now we just need like empathy. We just need care. We just need love. We just need compassion. We just need people to constantly come up with solutions and not continue to identify and point out problems. We know that we hurt and we know why we hurt. We know that it's a lot of mixed energies out there, but, you know, come up with some some solutions that can unify people and bring people together. And I think that's extremely important right now. I hope that everybody's on smart time. I, th I hope that everybody's trying to come up with solutions and rally people around each other because our society, if we don't do it now, I don't know what the future looks like. I can't even wrap my mind around what it may look like two years from now if we don't start you know, practicing those tactics. I, I really could not agree more. I think we are in a in a time of real vulnerability as a country and a time where we could end up kind of at each other's throats. And you do see people who, rather than sort of preaching what you're preaching, which is listening and learning and grace for other people, you do see people, the Elon Musks of the world, the Donald Trumps of the world, who are pitting us against each other, who are trying to say, these people are bad, we're good, and I see that on both sides to some degree. I see people being intolerant of the others, people who think people who don't vote like you, who don't look like you are, you know, like you can't understand them. You can't forgive them. You can't talk to them. You have to write them off. And that just seems like incredibly dangerous to me. Yeah, that's not it. That's not the way. Like you said, we need love. We need empathy. We need togetherness at an all time high right now. That memoir that you wrote was meaningful to me. Do you read uh, things like that? Are there other books that you would recommend to someone who who liked what they learned about you or other people whose stories that you would point to? Tim Grover just had a, not a, a biography, but Tim Grover just had uh, a book on 
winning that was so powerful. He was talking about like the mindset. And Tim Grover is a legendary trainer that trained Michael Jordan his entire career, came up with the Breakfast Club and stuff like that. But his last book, it was basically just about winning. Literally just forgot the title, but it was so good. I gave it to a friend like not even a week ago. It was just about like the mindset. And and you can apply, like I said, all the things in sports you can apply in your life. But like the mindset of conquering your biggest fears, trying to be a better version of yourself at all times, and then understanding like how you impact the team. And, And you can use that team concept into how you impact society. You know, so like you could just like play with it however you feel like you want to play with it. But I, I just thought it was relatively deep. It was something different. Is that the book called Relentless? Relentless. That's it. Yeah. Um, I just Googled it. I didn't know it, but maybe I'll I'll be reading it. That's a, um, that's a deep book, man. It, that's a I'm telling you, that's a that's a good one. And I've, I've read a lot of books on like winning and um, you know, progression and, you know, art of war and mastery and. Chop wood, carry water, um, all those things. I'm like, that was the one that like kind of just caught me like in a different way. If you are sort of one-on-one with a kid, a 15-year-old kid who has to make choices about their life and what direction, what do you say to that person if you have the chance? Say you an hour with somebody who who doesn't know what you know. Yeah. Well, that's that's the beautiful thing about being older and having experiences. It, it creates wisdom. And, and I would just give him or her the knowledge of my experiences. And I'm not going to tell them that this is something I read or I saw this algorithm and I think this is going to happen. I'm going to tell them from my real experiences, this is what I've seen and this is the path that I see that you can go down or this is the path that I see that could be your demise. And I would just educate and inform in the realest possible way without editing my language, without editing the graphics of the visual I would paint for them. And hopefully that they they take that and, you know, apply it to their life. Karan, are you optimistic for this country or pessimistic? I'm very optimistic. I mean, I, I think you have to be, but I'm also a realist and I see that the one thing about society, if so many people are stuck in their ways, it can't be growth. It, it they, won't nothing change if if you're just stuck and you refuse to move the needle on how you view things or how you process things. And what we're trying to do is just get people to believe and see things a little differently than we have in the past. And we have to open our mind to that. All people have to. Because if we don't, it's, it's going to be rough. I wanted to ask you one thing, which I haven't figured out how to fit into this interview, so I'm going to ask it here anyway, which is when I was 47, I'm 57 now, when I was 47, I got to play in the basketball game at my daughter's elementary school. And it was the parents against the staff and teachers and I got in for a few minutes and I went four for five with three three-pointers, which I think were not quite NBA three-pointers, but it, that that like two minutes was with a crowd of like, I don't know, a hundred people. It was kind of a high, you know, and I can't imagine 
what it was like to score 36 points in an NBA game with 20,000 people in the stadium and millions of people watching outside. Can you just give a sense for like, what are you feeling in moments like that? For me, four, four shots going in, you know, that, that felt pretty great. What is it like for you? Or what was it like? You know what? I think it's just like your preparation just being amplified. It is a great feeling being applauded, being cheered for. But the thing that I realize is that cheers don't cheers don't stay. Applause don't stay. Like it's I got off by knowing that my worth ethic was being recognized because I wasn't able to be stopped in these moments and I was prepared for these moments. That's what I really loved about the process of competition and making big shots and big moments and being cheered for because all the sweat equity that no one seen visually, no one was talking about, you see that hard work in real time. And it was just like, damn, that's a that's a beautiful thing. And that's that's one of the reasons I really like coaching too is because all the hard work that you put in behind closed doors, nobody's watching, all that stuff the film sessions, everything. And then all of a sudden guys go out and they prepare and you see that light bulb go off in real time on the court while they out there performing at a high level. And you just like, damn, like it's, that's, that's the reward. That's the feeling. And you want to continue to just open and shine light on that for people. I, I heard you on a podcast quite recently where you talked about a conversation with Kobe, where he talked to you about preparing for the next career while you were still in the current career. That struck me as quite wise. How would you advise people based on that advice about how they can like point themselves forward in their lives? I would say just that, you know, always be preparing for what's next and having that navigational mindset. I remember someone told me that like, like two weeks ago or three weeks ago, it's like, what, what does a na- you use a navigation system? Like, yeah, I use a navigational system. They like, what happens when you're driving and you make a wrong turn on your navigation? It reroutes you real quick and you got to have a navigational mindset when you're, you know, on the course of, of, of life. And I would, I would give that advice just like Kobe gave me. When you're at the height of your career, we was always discouraged to stay away from other things because people wanted us to focus on just basketball and that was it. But I love the new narratives that we are more than athletes, stuff like that. You see LeBron and other people posting and talking about that because you have to prepare yourself for act three, four, five, six, how many other acts you're going to have at the basketball because we plan on living a long time. And, you know, basketball is just a speck of time. You know, that's 10, 15 years. And then you got a lot of life left. So prepare yourself while you're in it. You think LeBron should run for office? He can do anything he want. <laughs> he really can. He can do anything he want. He has a large following. He's well-versed. He's extremely educated. And he speaks truth to power. So he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. You, I, I remember you also talking about uh, with the Wizards facing him three times in a row in the playoffs. And that guy was, I don't know, unstoppable. Yeah, he was a problem. He was big. He was uh, explosive, quick. And 
had an extremely high basketball IQ. And obviously we all witnessed that over the last 20 years and still witnessing it. So I knew that he was going to be elite, you know, for years to come. Well, I much enjoyed watching you on TV and in the stadium when you were with the Wizards and less so elsewhere. <laughs> but I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Is there anything else you want to say? Just want to say thank you for your time as well and tell everybody out there, be blessed. Will do. That was Karan Butler. He is at Vera.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.